Howdy. This is a uh, fuck. Welcome to the fail. Uh, no, no, I got this. I got this. All right. Welcome to the Art of the Fail. This is a podcast hosted by Christian Borgazan, co-founder of Arch, and myself, Chris Buttonham, co-founder of OB.ai. We sit down with startups and entrepreneurs or anyone interesting willing to sit down with us. We hope that we uncover lessons and anecdotes, but if not, we hope you get a laugh. <laughs> Nobody likes this shit. Let's just get started with the show. So today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Obi. Yes, Obi. Seeing as Christian slept in for this interview, I felt it was only fitting to hijack the sponsor slot. Do you ever get frustrated trying to find a document at work? I know, me too. So I'm rushing to a call and literally five minutes before the thing, I'm sifting through Google Drive, wait, or was it in Dropbox, to try and find my discovery call notes template. But now, with the brand new OB browser extension, I can just quickly hit Command-Shift-O, type in a few keywords, and boom, I've got all of my work documents within reach. And I can continue to prepare for meetings five minutes in advance. Also, in light of a lot of companies shifting to remote work amidst the pandemic, OB is now free for personal use. What this means is, even if your organization hasn't adopted OB yet, you can accelerate your own work for free. And look, I wear a lot of hats as a startup founder, as I'm sure you do as well. You know, closing sales, supporting customers, collaborating on product or marketing. All of these functions rely on a ton of knowledge and documentation. So why don't you head over to obi.ai slash personal today and install the free browser extension to build your own single source of truth. That's obi.ai slash personal. All right, welcome back to the Art of the Fail. Uh, you might be wondering why you hear my voice and not Christian's. Well, today I am joined by my partner in crime, actually, for obi.ai, Alex Sapinka. He is the quieter, more docile, and clearly more reliable version of Christian. Alex, right. welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've I've been bugging Chris to come on for three years now, and <laughs> he finally not he's not ready to let me on uh, as a guest to talk about failure, but uh, he's letting me co-host at least a little bit here. Awesome. Um, why don't you introduce our guest today? So we have April Dumford, uh, founder of Ambient Strategy. She helps companies uh, of all sizes go to market strategy and uh, and their marketing positioning. She's also an e- entrepreneur in residence at the DMZ and an alumna of my alma mater, University of Waterloo. Oh, another Waterlooser. Yes, yes, <laughs> That's yes. That's nice. Oh. So welcome to the show, April. Oh, it's um, good to be here. Thanks for having me. We have some rapid fire questions to start off. Sure. Um, so the first is, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, I, I literally didn't have anything for breakfast this morning. Is that bad? I had coffee and not even proper coffee because I gave up caffeine. So I had decaf coffee for breakfast. <laughs> is that lame? That is no, like the You'd be surprised how many times we've gotten that answer. Yeah, this is like the art of the fail right here. Yeah. I failed at breakfast. I failed before I even got going this morning. Yeah. yeah. But I did succeed in not having any caffeine. If that, I feel good about that if nobody else does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What did I have for breakfast? What kind of a question is that? <laughs> well, it leads me into uh, my next one. 
how many cups of coffee do you drink every day? Well, see, this is this is the dovetails into the first one. So I never used to drink that much coffee, but I think it, apparently I, I've read about this that some people are really sensitive to caffeine. So caffeine kind of wires them up more than regular people. And I never drank that much coffee, but I switched offices. And in my new office, there's this communal coffee pot. And I don't know what they're doing with that coffee, but it is like three times the caffeine of any <laughs> coffee I've ever drank in my life. And so I started drinking this coffee, and it was killing me. By the end of the afternoon, I was getting really punchy. Like, like I'd be on calls, and I'm like, answer faster, answer faster. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, and I had somebody say, April, you're a little intense when we have calls later in the afternoon. And so I decided, you know what, that coffee, that I decided that was it. And so I thought I would do an experiment and quit coffee or quit mm. caffeine. And I did. And that actually, I'm a more pleasant person to deal with <laughs> afternoons. And so, yeah, but I still like a hot drink in the morning and I'm not a tea person all that much. So I drink decaf now, which is like just kind of terrible coffee that doesn't make you jittery. But yeah, and so maybe I drink one of those, but... So the answer is none. I don't drink any. <laughs> it must well, be some of that uh, fair trade, grass-fed uh, hipster coffee. That... Well, sometimes you do get hipster decaf. It's pretty good. Yeah. But but uh, but not anywhere near me, man. Yeah. I don't know. I, <laughs> all the all the coffee I'm drinking is legit terrible. Like, <laughs> but um, but I it's it's force a habit. I think yeah. I could give up the caffeine easily, but the mm -hmm. habit of getting a coffee in the morning, I haven't been able to give up. I agree. Yeah. Same. Um iPhone or Android? Uh, I'm totally Android. Oh, nice, nice. We're we're coming. We're we're clawing back the Android. I got a story about that. Okay. So, um, so I went to school like you at the University of Waterloo, and so and then my first job out of school was at a startup in Waterloo, and and in fact the CTO of that startup left to go be the CTO of this tiny tiny little company called Research in Motion. <laughs> And so uh, we all had Blackberries when there were no smartphones, and, and that was the only thing you could get. And we had those for years before there was an iPhone. And then when the iPhone came up, it, it was so cool looking and everything, but I had to give up so much to switch. Like if you were already using an, a smartphone, you didn't go to iPhone because, you know, I couldn't roam in Europe. I couldn't roam in Europe until the iPhone the third one or the fourth one, which just blew my mind. I was like, I can't give up roaming in Europe. I got all kinds of business in Europe. So, um, so I never went iPhone and I just, if you did, if you don't, you just don't. And so, yeah, I'm Andrew. I would agree with that. I'm a, I'm a hardcore, uh, veteran Blackberry user until I had to yeah. just make the switch to Android. So yeah, I think that checks out. Were actually really, really early, early smartphone adopters mm -hmm. were Android for that reason. Mm -hmm. Cause they're like, Oh, it looks so cool. And there's all those, you know, I could do tap to fart. You know, the beginning with the app store was just all these <laughs> stupid games. Like, yeah. and so the iPhone people would come to me and say, you could give up roaming in Europe for tap to fart. And I'm like, no, I don't want to roaming in Europe for tap to fart. I'm not it. And so, and then, you know, now, of course, they're all equal as far as I'm concerned. I don't think there's any difference one or the other. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I'm used to Android and all my stuff's on Android and I'm all... Google Suite and stuff, it would be too painful to switch now. Yeah. For me, it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Like half price. Right. Yeah. For me, it was, um, I'm a software programmer. So, um, uh, Blackberry used J 
Java programming language, and then uh, Android was also Java. So. So were you computer science or engineering at Waterloo? Uh, neither. I was you, math. Some other, oh, you were math. Yeah. Math. Which is essentially computer science, but. Which is computer that's science. That's another. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. You're still in there, and you're still in that building. Yeah. The cement. <laughs> the cement cube. Yeah. Um, next question: Do you prefer written or audiobooks? Uh, written books, written books, and actually, I have a book out right now. I just released a book in May, and uh, and I decided to do put put out the wait wait on the audio version because I thought, well, maybe it's a crappy book and nobody wants it, so I. <laughs> some work by not doing an audiobook of a, of a book nobody wants to read but then the book is turned out to be kind of popular but oh man people are on my case about the fact that I don't have an audiobook and I really need to get it but I know I'm not much of an audiobook person but you know I say that and my kids are super audiobook people and you know one of my kids hates to read and the other the other one loves reading and one of them I think is just wired for reading and the other one isn't but they both listen to a lot of audiobooks in addition to reading books. But me, I'm a, I'm a, I do, I do eBooks. I have a Kindle, but, um, but I, I read them. I don't listen to them. Awesome. And that book is obviously awesome, right? Yeah. That's the title as well as the description. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, nice positioning. Awesome. Yeah. It's a book about positioning. It's cool. People seem to like it. But yeah, I put it out in I put it out back in May, but I'm I'm now working on the audio version or I'm trying to figure out when to do it. I'm I'm on a bit of a book tour right now. Okay. Um and so that runs until sort of November. I'm on the road a lot. But then December I think I'll do an audio book version. So there'll there'll be there will be great joy in the land when I put this thing out. <laughs> man, I'm getting a lot of static from the, the techies in particular. Yeah. I think a lot of folks just strictly audio book. Yeah. And I appreciate that, but I just haven't got around to making one yet. But I'm going to, and when I do, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Great. You, hear, you heard it here on The Art of the Fail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. So that book is available, obviously awesome, uh, on yeah. Amazon, anywhere you buy books, I'm sure. Um, and we'll put the link to the description, uh, look, sure. link to the book in the description, as well as maybe a little pop-up here that shows the book as well. Um, Alex, last question? Yes, last question. Still on the books. Um, aside from obviously awesome, what's the best book you've read in the past year? In the past year, or ever, mm-hmm. if you can't think of the past year. Yeah, you know, I've read I've read a lot of good books in the last few years. I um, uh, I really enjoyed Atomic Habits. I know everybody's reading that book right now, but I really enjoyed Atomic Habits. It really got me thinking about why I do what I do and thinking about changing my own behavior. I thought that was a good book. And then, um, I, I met this gal at a conference, Melissa Peary, that, um, wrote a book called the build trap. Um, which if you're on the product management side of things, I think is an excellent, excellent read. Um, and, uh, you know, for the, for the work that I do, like I get asked a lot, like, are there any books that really influenced you? And like my work is mainly centered on positioning and there's, there's kind of only one book on the subject that anybody's ever read, which is this book called positioning the battle for your mind, but it's super old. It came out in 1982, Oh wow! <laughs> which is like before the internet. But if you go 
learn positioning in school, it's still kind of the reference book um, that people keep coming back to. And they sort of coined the term positioning. They defined the term positioning. So I, I always recommend that people read that book if they want to just get a better feel for what positioning is. is. The problem, though, with that book, and the, the reason I wrote mine to a certain extent, is that the book described what positioning was, but it didn't, get, it didn't tell you how to do it. <laughs> yeah. The idea was it's not tactical. You were, yeah, you were supposed to call them. It, it was marketing, is what it was. So it, when people say there was no content marketing back in the olden days before the internet, I say, oh no, <laughs> read this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is an excellent example of content marketing before the internet. So yeah, the idea was you were supposed to read the book, get the religion, and then and then call them. And they were an advertising agency, and they would do it for you. Um, but I still recommend that book a lot. I do think it is kind of the the master reference work on how to do on how to think about this stuff then if you want to do it you're going to have to go read my book or do something else or to do it like me the hard way and just figure it out slowly and poorly <laughs> but i think that's a good book too i think people should read it awesome um great april thank you so much again for joining us i think it's time to jump into some failures but before we do um i would love for you just to give our listeners a little bit more context into who you are, you know, uh, how do you get here? Um, and, and why did you fall in love with this particular, um, uh, niche that you have fallen into? Yeah. So, um, my background I think has a lot to do with that. So, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I graduated, I did systems design engineering at the university of Waterloo. And so, um, when I finished, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I ended up getting a job at a startup kind of by accident. Like my friend worked there. I didn't know what I was going to do when I was done. She worked there. She put in a word for me and I got a job in a product marketing role, um, which sat inside the marketing department. So here I was, I have an engineering degree. I'm doing what's technically a marketing job. And, uh, that company grew really fast, got acquired, and then my boss left. And I inherited the marketing team of a $2 billion revenue company <laughs> and like one division inside wow. that. And I had 30-some people working for me and this great big budget. And I literally can't spell marketing. Like I've never <laughs> even taken a marketing class. Like I, I got nothing. And But one thing that you know, University of Waterloo is kind of a fancy school, and so it's really hard to get in. And in systems design, when I was there, was kind of the fancy program at the fancy school. And so if there's one thing you got from systems design was just this kind of ego that was like, how hard could it be? <laughs> you know, it can't be worse than mechanics of deformable solids. That was hard. And so I decided I was just going to muscle my way through it and figure it out. So. I read a lot of books. Um, I had really smart people on my team that I learned a lot from, and I took a bunch of courses. And that was where I first got introduced to the concept of positioning, which was interesting because I had already done it with the product that I was that I was working on. We had repositioned it, uh, but I didn't know that's what it was called, and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and, we, we ended up with a really good positioning in the market, but it was kind of trial and error. So I thought, this is really interesting. And here you've got this really important um, thing. Uh, I wonder how you do it. And eventually I'll get to that course. And so I ended up leaving that company. I went to another startup. We did the same thing. Uh, we had a product. I repositioned it. 
uh, we grew really fast. We got acquired. And I did that essentially. Uh, I, wor- I ended up working at seven different startups as wow. an executive. Six of those startups got acquired, which resulted in me working at five really big companies. And across all those companies, um, all seven startups plus the big ones, I launched 13 products into market. And every single one of those I repositioned at some point. And so I, you know, after the third or fourth one, I'm like, what the heck? We, we do this every time. <laughs> like, we, I should, I should, there should be a methodology to do this. this is my engineering brain told me this. There must be a methodology. We can't just make this stuff up. So I took a bunch of classes and um, eventually, and, you know, it turns out marketers are really snobby about where you take a class. Like I took some classes and they'd say, I'd say, how do you do positioning? I haven't figured that out yet. And they said, that's because you're taking the wrong classes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And they, and they were like, where'd you take the class? And I said, University of Toronto. And they were like, never heard of it. Wrong course. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, where am I supposed to take it? They're like, Northwestern. That's where the oh. marketing people go. I said, all right. So I went and took this intensive sort of postgrad thing at Northwestern. And the, the, I'm taking this class and there's a module on position. It's actually not even a module. It's one class on positioning. So I'm like, okay, finally, I'm going to learn this thing about positioning. The professor gets up and he says, uh, we're going to learn about positioning. And he puts this thing up called the positioning statement. And, the, and if you're in marketing, you've probably seen this thing. It's like a fill in the blanks, mad libs kind of thing. You know, we are a blank for blank that does blank without but you know, in versus blank. And so you put in who your competitors are and what your segmentation is and all this stuff. And so he puts this thing up, he talks about it for a little bit. He explains what each of the blanks are. Market category is the category that you're in, blah, blah, blah. He explains what a market category is. And then, and then he starts moving on to the next topic. And I'm sitting at the back of the room and I had just repositioned a product that we had originally positioned it as a personal use database and we repositioned it as an embeddable database for mobile devices. This giant shift in positioning. And so I, so I put up my hand and I'm like, dude, like one of those blanks is market category. So how do I know what the right market category is? Cause like, for example, I'm just at this company, we did this thing and you know, we were one market category and the product was failing. We shifted to another market category and the product took off. So how would I have known that there was a better one? Like, how do I, how do I figure out market category? And the guy did this thing where he looked at me and he's like this old guy, you know, and he's got his glasses. He's like total professor type. And so he's up at the front and he does this thing where his glasses are all down his nose and he squints. <laughs> and he does this thing where he looks at me over his glasses and he says, and I'm like, how do you know which market category? And he squints up at me and he goes, trust me, April, you'll just know. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> brain was like no no life doesn't work like that i didn't just know mechanics of informable solids and what do you think we're all dummies half the people on my founding team have a phd in something we're not idiots and we didn't just know like there's got there must be a way to figure it out so then that sort of became this thing that vexed me for like 10 years i was like and so eventually that's how i got to be this positioning weirdo so so you know eventually i decided you know you can take positioning and break it into pieces And, you know, and positioning has five component pieces, it turns out, and they're the blanks of the positioning statement, market category, competitive comparables, unique features, value, and customers. So I can break it into that, and then I thought, well, you just have to figure out what the right answer is for each of the pieces, then I'll have a 
a methodology. But when you dig into it, it's actually really hard because all the pieces relate to each other. Like your differentiated value is dependent on your unique features, but your features are only unique if you're comparing them to a competitor. And your market category is actually the context where your value makes the most sense to your target customer. So where do you start? And so eventually I came up with a methodology and a flow where you start in a certain place, you get to another place. The book is all about that. But to answer your question, how do I get here? That's how I got here. That's interesting. A bit of of falling into things and a bit of uh, self-learning and then a bit of, you know, me looking at marketing professors like, why don't we know this? We should know this. You're saying we don't have a, like, yeah. That's an awesome story. I love when, you know, people are doing something that came out of a a passion. And and, uh, I, I, I didn't think about this coming into the conversation, but just hearing you talk about positioning how much overlap do you get with product market fit methodologies? Oh gosh, like like honestly, we could have a whole podcast. Yeah, on I it. bet we could. Um, so fundamentally, at at a kind of gut level, I don't believe in product market fit. I don't think that that's a thing. Hmm. And the reason I don't think it's a thing is because anytime we have a conversation about product market fit we get into how do you know if you have product market fit and the answer to that question is we don't subject so if i don't know whether i've got it or not is it a useful construct for me like and as the head of marketing the repeat head of marketing at a set of different startups you know i've had some people tell me that product market fit is the moment where you know you can put your foot on the gas in marketing and i'm like no it ain't because every single company i ever came into if you asked them, did they have product market fit? They'd say yes. And I'd say, why do you think that? And they'd say, because I have a whole bunch of customers and I surveyed them and they said they would be super disappointed if the product went away. So I have product market fit. And I'm like, great, describe your market. And none of them can. So what I would do then is I'd say, look, we know we have fit, if you want to call it that. We know that a certain group of customers really loves our stuff. What we don't know is why. And we don't know what is it about that customer that makes them a really good fit for our product. So I don't need product market fit. What I need is an actionable customer segmentation. Mm. What's that? That's a thing I can use to build programs on. So if you come to me and say, small businesses love our stuff, I cannot build you a marketing program for small businesses. It's too vague. I like, what am I going to like? Yeah, I literally worked for a company where he said, our, our target market is Fortune 1000 companies. <laughs> and I'm like, what, we just write a list? There's a thousand and that's it? We're going to sell every single one of them? And the thing we did was software that helped you deliver an internal build software project. So I'm like, what if I don't build software, but I'm a Fortune 1000 company because I'm like a mining company or something? And the CEO says, no, we don't, we don't target them. And I'm like, well we don't use this at tech companies. So what if I'm a tech company? Oh yeah, tech companies, we take those off the list too. And I'm like, well, wait, what if I'm a fortune 2000 company, but I build a lot, a lot, a lot of software inside. So I really need this thing. Then am I a target? Yes. Okay. We, so this company's doing 40 million revenue. They obviously have, you know, if, if I said, do you have product market fit? They'd say yes, but I still can't put my foot on the gas because I can't answer any questions that allow me to put my foot on the gas. So we dig into it and then we find out who actually really, really loves our stuff. It turns out if you're doing internal software development projects 
and your development teams are distributed, then our value proposition is chef's kiss. Everyone loves it. Right? So that, so then I say, okay, how do I know if you have a distributed development team or why do you have a distributed development team? Two reasons. One, you did an acquisition and there was a development team or you did many acquisitions. So the development teams are spread out all over the place because you keep acquiring them. And two, you decided to outsource it or offshore it. And so you have remote development teams doing part of the work and, and onshore development teams do another part of the work. Now, ask me, April, can you build me a marketing plan to go sell to people that outsource software development? Oh, this is easy peasy lemon squeezy. Like it's so easy, right? I can like, before these people were running webinars on like how to manage a good internal software project. Now I'm running a webinar on, oh my God, you got outsourced teams and you have no idea how to manage that project. I'm going to help you manage it. That mm-hmm. is really specific. Mm-hmm. And the only people that are going to show up to that are people that have offshore stuff. Do you know that there's a magazine called Outsourcers Weekly <laughs> and you can buy a full page ad in that magazine for 5,000 bucks. And I drove so much money That's just awesome. advertising in that thing is ridiculous right so product market fit for me as a head of marketing at a startup i'm like i don't know what it is and i don't care what it is because nobody knows if they have it or they don't have it do you know who loves product market fit and wants it to be a thing vcs yeah because yeah. product market fit represents the exact perfect moment to well, write they can you a deploy check. capital yeah mm-hmm. right yeah and so they want it to be a thing so bad that they're writing blog posts and they're doing all this stuff and they're trying to convince everybody that product market fit is a thing when it be, and, and the reason the startups care about it is because when they go in to pitch to VCs to get money, the VCs are like, have you found product market fit? And so what's the answer to that? Yes. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but it's not useful to me as a person who's trying to drive revenue operationally inside a business. And if it is not useful to me operationally inside the business, then I'm like, it ain't even a thing. So that's, that's my rant. That's so rant. awesome. That's, uh... now, now, here's the thing. So what's the difference between product market fit and positioning? Positioning is actually a thing. It's right. actually a thing. Right. And part of positioning is deeply understanding what are my what is my differentiated value and what is the actionable customer segmentation that matches that? So who cares about that value and why? If I can answer that, then I can size that market and I can tell you how much revenue I can drive out of that. I can build programs around it. I, then I can put my foot on the gas. So if you have verified strong positioning, then am I ready to put my foot on the gas and scale like crazy? Yes. So. Maybe what we should be doing is instead of sitting around trying to decide whether, you know, consult the tarot cards and the chicken bones (laughs) and dice to see whether or not we've got product market fit, maybe what we should do is just focus on getting an actionable customer segmentation and then we would have something that we could actually action on instead of this hoo-ha. Again, it's just it's investors want this to be a thing, not people inside the company. If investors weren't talking about it, we'd all stop talking about it. I couldn't agree more. And um, that's for our, our product and our startup focused listeners. Uh, what a unique and different opinion. I'm, I'm, I'm super glad that, uh, that we went down. The crazy thing is it's not. It's just people are scared to say that because the investors will be like, oh, you don't know. You well, don't know because you, yeah. you have it. You'll know. It's just like my professor about the positioning. You'll just know. Like and that's, that's, what that's half the problem. And I'm like, yeah. that's such bullshit. 
me. Like I just, yeah. like I just don't believe it. But every time that, like, but every time I like, so on Twitter I went on this rant once <laughs> where like, I don't think product market fit is a thing, and I got like a thousand likes. Like I am not alone on this. Mm-hmm. There are tons of people that believe this is true, but they're quiet about it because if you ever want to raise money, you can't admit that you don't believe it's a thing. Me, and I'm not raising any problem, money right? anymore. For yeah, so, so yeah. I say it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's a good segue um, to if it's possible to narrow in on the top product positioning failure for um, startups or just companies in general, top three if they're if they're short and succinct. Well, the, the biggest the biggest thing, and again, because I ended up doing so many startups because of the startups I was at kept getting acquired, like because I've been in so many. You can start seeing the patterns and the the biggest pattern I saw in terms of, you know, things we get wrong about positioning, like the most obvious largest one is we just don't think about it. Like we don't position deliberately. Mm. So we have positioning. We just kind of fell into it. And what I mean by that is um, most of the companies I worked at, the founders had created the product with a particular positioning in mind. They had a particular target customer. They thought they were delivering a particular value. So um, the very first product I ever worked on, um, it was a it was a little database product and we built it. We built it because a customer asked us to build it and then we thought we'll release this to everybody. And what it was was a really lightweight, low footprint database that you could put on your PC and and it and it ran SQL. And this was like a thousand years ago, like back in the 90s. And back in the 90s, if you wanted a SQL database, you had to put it on a server because it took up all kinds of space. And, and it was really hard to install and configure. And if you wanted to do quote unquote database stuff on your PC, people used things like Microsoft Access, which was crap, and it didn't run SQL. And so if you wanted to run structured query language on, on a PC, you couldn't do that without a lot of hassle. So we built this thing that was like Microsoft Access, except it ran SQL, and you could just, you know, click, 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 install it on your PC. So we thought, we're techie people, right? We're like, who wouldn't want one of those? Everybody wants one of those, right? And, and it turns out nobody wants one. But <laughs> that's the way we were positioning it, right? We, we, you know, and we put it out in the market. And it didn't sell very well. And, you know, it it, it sold a little, but it wasn't our main product. And we almost killed it at one point because we're like, why are we even selling this thing? It's just costing us money and whatever. But luckily we didn't. Like what we did do was I went on this thing where I basically got a list of all the customers and I talked to everybody about what are you doing with it? What do you like? What do you don't? And it turned out even the customers we had, like basically everybody hated it. <laughs> like they thought it was going to be cool to have SQL on a thing. And then they got it and they were like, you know what? I can actually just do this with macros and a spreadsheet. And <laughs> I didn't know, you know, so I bought it, but I never even used it. Like there was a lot of this. Um, and so that sucked. And then, uh, but I had a handful of customers that were super happy. And the common thing across the customers that were super happy was, they were using it on a laptop and lap, you know, again, this is like a thousand years ago, like laptops were new. (laughs) And so they had it on a laptop and what they were, they said, you know, what's really cool is if I got a database on a laptop that runs SQL, I can sync it with a database back in headquarters. And so one guy 
basically had his sales team out on the road with laptops with this little database underneath and they could take orders on the laptop and then when they get back to headquarters just sync it up and no one could do that before and so i found this handful of customers that all had this unique use case so i took that back to the office and said maybe you know maybe there's something there maybe we should do that and so you know so there was this 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 discussion around maybe that's what it is and so you know we tested that we had some you know but but the thought of changing that positioning was kind of scary because that, that changed everything it did, like the pricing structure would have to be different the product roadmap would have to be different uh, we wouldn't be able to sell it the same way like we were selling it you know like b2c and we were going to have to actually have a sales team and go out and sell these things by the hundreds and so it was kind of a scary shift and we but we made the decision and we we dipped a toe over there and it turned out the thing took off like wildfire like it was actually crazy we sold so many it was crazy and then that company got ended up getting acquired by a big big database company called uh sybase which at the time was the biggest database company in the mm -hmm. world. And then our thing became a division inside Sybase. And at one point that was a billion dollar business line. Wow. This little thing that, you know, we almost canned it because it didn't look like anybody wanted it. And, but had we been, so that, so that's an example of like, we just did this default mm -hmm. positioning, but mm -hmm. had we gone through a process, we would have said, you know, okay, what's our real competitor? Our real competitor is, Microsoft Access, or but it's also spreadsheets and whatever. And then what do we have that they don't have? Well, this idea that it was, we knew that SQL was unique, but we didn't think enough about the idea that it was really small footprint and really easy to install made us a perfect fit for mobile devices. And we were like the only, and then, you know, this idea that because it's SQL and on a mobile device, now what can we do? And we didn't do enough thinking about what that unique feature set of features together could enable for a customer and then how we w we could potentially position that and had had we have done some deep thinking about that we would have got to this thing earlier and you know and as it was we got there but it was just lucky because some customers decided to use it that way but we could have been unlucky and never had a customer try it and we would have never thought about going that path ourselves so that's the biggest the biggest yeah. thing that people get wrong is they, they fail to deliberately position the product. They just kind of fall into the positioning that was in their mind when they built it. What a cool story. I guess that goes to show, well, you've, you've had a track record of, of turning these things around, um, you know, with positioning at the, at the helm. So that's super cool. I think a lot of successful products, it's funny how a lot of successful products, if you dig into the stories, you know, there's a shift in positioning that mm -hmm. happens at some point. It's just maybe you didn't know what you were doing <laughs> yeah. or maybe you didn't know what to call it but you know you learn something about your customer base and your product and 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 where the intersection of those two things happens in a really glorious amazing magical way um and, and that's where a lot of really successful products come from it's like oh well, we built this thing and it was terrible and it didn't really work but then we had this kind of insight about hey we could take this and use it in this way and then woof and almost every product I ever worked on that became really successful, it went like that. That's been uh, Alex and I's story. We A year and a half ago, we repositioned our product that just wasn't working. Um, and we're still solving the same problem uh, with a completely different positioning. 
Um, and like you said, it was the unique insight that we learned from failing the first time that exactly. was actually the, the secret sauce in what is now, uh, what we'd like to think a successful product. So, well, that's it, right? Like it's the failure that makes you go looking yeah. for, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like if it wasn't, if it wasn't failing and the thing was working, then, you know, you don't have a problem and everything's fine. Yeah. But, but what's interesting about that is I've worked at companies where the positioning was great at the beginning. Right. And so the default positioning was fine and now we're fine until something happened. So, you know, a competitor came in the market or there was a shift in technology or there was a shift in the economy or like sh- shit happens. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then all of a sudden a thing that was working isn't working. And so then that then that's where everybody's like, oh, gosh, you know, maybe it's a marketing problem. Maybe it's a sales problem. But sometimes the root of this thing is actually the market has shifted. It's therefore requiring a shift in positioning. But because we've never actually deliberately positioned the thing before, we don't even know how to fix that. That's interesting. Uh, that's a, that's sort of the question that I was going to ask on that. Do you think that because some companies are lucky enough to, uh, you know, get success from that default positioning that they've sort of built yeah. muscle memory around not knowing how to reposition? Well, I think I think that you know I think everybody has the ability to reposition yeah. a product mm-hmm. if they're thoughtful about it. But I do think that sometimes these ones that have you know, early success, you know, they have this idea that yeah, I can predict this stuff. And I just know that, you know, it's like my marketing professor, you just know. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And, and the VCs are all telling me, you'll know product market fit when you have it, mm-hmm. you know, and so they think it's a thing that they should just know. And so when things go bad, they, some folks, I think, will default flip to, well, it must be, it must be a poor execution problem. So growth is slow because our sales team sucks or growth is slow because we're just not tapping the right customer acquisition channels. We just need more leads. That's all we need. More leads. Just, you know, let's fire the head of marketing, get a new one, wave the magic wand, get more leads Mm -hmm. and then everything will be fixed. And you're not used to checking into, whereas if you had to struggle to get to the right positioning, then I think you naturally have this worry and this suspicion that you could lose it. And so, you're more likely to check in on it if things are going bad rather than default to, well, it must be execution. Um, yeah, I think you're more likely to say, are all our assumptions about our target market still correct? Right. And, you know, are we are we really selling for this reason or has something happened and now we're selling for different reasons? And you're more likely to check in on it, I think. So, yeah. Before uh, we move on, uh, speaking of ancient laptops, Alex, what was your what was your first laptop? Didn't it have a handle? Yeah, it was like a suitcase, like, <laughs> uh, like a boat anchor. We, so, yeah. so at that company that I worked at, we were always laughing because th- this was like in the early days of laptops. So you know the the sales and marketing team we had laptops, but the developers didn't have laptops. They had great big boxes, and so. <laughs> At one point, they were all complaining that, you know, they wanted to take their stuff home to be able to work at home. And so the CEO went and he and he, he screwed handles on the tops <laughs> of the boxes. And so you would see the guys in the dev team go out like, rrr, 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 <laughs> you know, home hardware, like, you know, metal handle on the top. That's and awesome. And so we used to always talk about that. We used to call it developer laptop. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> It's a portable computer. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, April, one of the interesting things about your story, I think, is um, 
when you took over, and correct me if I'm wrong, I have limited context here. When you took over uh, as CEO for a company called Sprintly, and I actually just, just on Twitter the other day, we had already had this podcast um, scheduled and I saw somebody asking about, hey, does anyone have any good examples of where a CEO that wasn't the original founder took a company to success and your name was mentioned i was like oh that that is interesting oh, isn't, that, isn't that interesting yeah you I'm don't hear sure, that often. i'm not sure i would say i took that company to success but <laughs> but, but maybe um and i and i didn't do it without the founder is the right? other piece that they they don't know so sprintly was a really special case so um so this was the product of a drunken conversation between <laughs> so so here's here's the history yeah of the yeah, yeah so so Joe Stump, who I've known for a long time, is a super smart guy, and he's founded a bunch of companies. And um, and he one of the companies that he founded was this company Sprintly, and it was in the project management space, which is a terrible space. Like if you were going to do a new startup right mm-hmm. now, it's probably the last thing I would mm-hmm. recommend you do because there's so many products in that space. It's really crowded, and then there's lots of big companies and the big established products like Trello and Jira. Like you just don't want to be in that space. But anyway, so he had this company raise some money. It grew pretty well, um, but sales kind of plateaued, be, you know, because the space was super crowded. And he ended up selling it. And uh, anyways, fast forward a few years after that, he and I were both speaking at a conference, and uh, and you know, and at the end of the day, we all go to the bar, <laughs> we're drinking beers, <laughs> and we got talking about how there are a lot of perfectly good SaaS companies that that look like failures because they're not growing fast enough to get VC investment, but they're very, very good small businesses. And, they, and you know, and it's a good piece of software and, and the customers don't churn because they like it and whatever. So we're having that conversation about how, you know, because we're both kind of haters about, about traditional VC. And so we were talking about that and um, and and he said, well, yeah, like, and he started talking about Sprintly. He said, I've got one of these. Like, uh, you know, it's 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 still got thousands of paying customers. The customers love it. They call me all the time. You know, it's, it's owned by this other company right now, and they're kind of neglecting it because it's not really core to their business. But, you know, I always thought, you know, I should just run that company because it's this nice little business and it's not growing super fast, but that's okay. Who cares? You know, and and you got these customers and they're all happy. And so I was, and he's like, we should, we should buy that thing back. And you know, we're, we're at the bar drinking. Like, it sounds like a great idea. We're like, yeah, cheers. You know, yeah, let's buy that thing. And then we did. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, our timing was really good and that, you know, we called them and they, they were, you know, doing some downsizing and stuff and it was a good time for them to get rid of the asset. And so they just sold it. They just sold us the asset. And he was the original founder though. Like I would have never done that without him. Like, it, like he knew where all the bodies were buried in the code and the, the code base had been <laughs> a little neglected, you know, in the years that he wasn't running it. So there was quite a backlog of stuff to fix. And, but we sort of assembled this little ragtag group of people. And then what we try to do is just focus in on just like just the core of folks that love us. And if there's this little slice, you know, of folks that they want more than Trello, you know, because they want GitHub integration and they want Slack integration, but they don't want Jira. Like Jira's 
killing them, right? And we had some special features, like you could manage multiple projects in it. So if you were a custom dev shop, Sprintly was a really, really, mm. is a really, really, really good, dead simple, clean project management tool to use for that. So we just focused on that. And that was a super fun business to run for a while. And, um, but then, you know, we, so I, well, so Joe and I ran it together. And then at one point, Joe bought out my shares and ran it by himself for a while. And then the last I heard, a customer bought it oh, wow. from Joe. And I think they're running it now. Because I, I had some, e I had some email exchange with a guy and, and I was like, who are you? And he's like, I own Sprintly. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I still have the password for the Facebook account. <laughs> and stuff like that. That's and funny. So, and so I, and he was a customer. So I think that's where it's at now. So, but we didn't, you know, grow the thing really mm -hmm, big mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and turn it into some, because that's impossible in that space. Yeah. But what we did do was kind of just make it stable, keep the people that were using it happy and just ring the cash register every month. Really? I mean, it was, it was a neat is continues to be a neat little business. Very interesting. Um, well, before we wrap up, I wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, speak about anything that you really wanted to talk about today on the show, if if at all. Oh, that's so open-ended, my goodness. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know what? When you guys called me and you said, well, we have this thing and it's art of the fail or whatever, and I was thinking about how, yeah, we don't really talk about our failures that much. And then I was like, well, what failures do I want to talk about? And, you know, it got me, it, it actually sparked this kind mm -hmm. of deep thinking. As it does. About how, um, like, I'm failing all the time. Like, I, you know, I failed this morning with the breakfast thing. <laughs> I, but I don't think about it that way, like, in my mind, right? I, I Like, I don't think about it as failure. Like, I, like... It, like and I went, you know, I I literally made a list. Like let's make a, make a list of professional failures of April Dunford, right? So and I and I listed a whole bunch of things, right? Never should have took that job. Never should have launched that product. Never should have done this thing. Like listed a bunch of things, but but every single one of them, like what happened as a result afterwards was cool and I kind of couldn't have got there without things going off the rails before that. And so as a result, I was having a hard time, you know, really calling a thing a failure, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> even though, you know, like if I looked at like, well, we could get into like individual product campaigns that I ran that I was like, so sure we're going to run, we're going to be good. And, you know, we, we did a little test and it looked okay. And I'd be like, no, this is going to be great. And they'd be running and like, no, it's not great at all. <laughs> like, we just blew 30 grand on that thing. Um, but, but, you know, you learn so much from doing those, you know, you have a few really big flameouts and then you learn, okay, I'm not going to do that again. And now eh, if I could have done that all over and like, even in the process of writing my book, like there were like, th th I attempted to write this book for like six years and my first handful of attempts at it were total failures. Like, um, you know, first I thought I would, I would write it myself. And then I started a new business with a business partner. And so I had this idea that me and the business partner could write it together. And then it turned out my business partner was, was a terrible, like just not a good business partner for me. And so we, you know, so we, we went our separate ways and then I put the whole book thing on the back burner for a while. And then I thought, well, 
I co-author would make this good. And especially if I had a co-author that knew something about books and written a book before. So then I, I got a really good friend of mine and he's a super smart guy and he's written a bunch of really amazing books. So we had this kind of year long conversation about doing a book together, but he was really busy. I was really busy. He's not really a marketing guy. And so we were trying to get aligned on the topic, but it turned out I had this, you know, I had this positioning thing burning, right? So us getting aligned on the topic consisted of me trying to convince him that we were just going to write my book. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, why am I doing this? And then, you know, we, so we decided to not do that anymore. And then, and then, yeah, so it took me forever. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time with a publisher, but then I decided publishers are idiots and they don't actually do anything for you. So then I got rid of my publisher and then I decided to self-publish like, but, but in the end, am I super happy with where I got to in the end? Yeah. Like had I actually been successful, any of the previous versions of trying to do this book, it would have been way worse than where I ended up today. So even though it took forever to get it out and literally my friends, when I, finally did release the book they were like i gotta be honest with you april i've been hearing this story about you doing the book for like six years and i really didn't believe you anymore and congratulations um but i'm happy to where i got to so again i don't know maybe all your people say this when they come on the show but um but i had a hard time sort of putting things in the failure bucket mm -hmm. even though they were clearly failures so absolutely that's pretty much the conclusion we come to at the end of every podcast which i think will end up uh, making the podcast obsolete at some point but i think it's interesting right and i think what a lot of folks have issues with um ourselves included i'm sure is uh, and I'm, I'm curious just on a final note how do you think about it when you face those challenges in the moment so when you're going through um, the co-author uh, debacle and the publisher yeah, like the failure bit. right yeah. so you know well, you've come out the other end of it how well you know so one thing is like one thing that really bugs me is when you know you fail at something and you'll be out of the bar going oh I did this stupid thing and I just wasted a year and blah 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 and your friends say no, you didn't. It'll all be great. And uh, don't worry. You know, you'll look back and say this is. Uh, and they're right. But I do think that it is important to grieve your failures a little bit and like let people have their moment of. God, that sucked. Like I, I like I think you you actually, we should be better at this at letting people, you know, live with their failure and not be so quick to like forget about it. Blah, like. Because it sucks. Like you, you, yeah. you just lost a year. Like you actually did lose a year of your life. And yeah, later you will feel better and things will be better. But but you're not. But today it's not. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think today we've ever not. heard that one before. Very and tactical. I think, well, I think we should actually be allowed to yeah. feel bad. And, and people should comfort us in our feeling bad and say, that does suck, April. You did use, lose a year of your life. And <laughs> I'm buying the drinks tonight. And man i hope things look better in a couple of months but i get you man this is painful and mm -hmm. but we don't do that instead we try to wipe it away we try to pretend there's no pain on the earth and that's not true like we're all living through painful things right now and i don't feel like we're sympathetic to that like we're all failing at something right now and if i'm sitting at the bar going oh i failed the last thing i want is for someone to say 
yeah, that's irrelevant. You'll be fine in a day. And this is just a hot minute in your life. And let me tell you about my shitty stuff or whatever, you know, like we should be, you, you should be able to say like, yeah, that, that actually sucks. And, you know, and maybe dissect it a little bit or something and, you know, which is what you're going to do anyway. But I, I think we need to let people sit hmm. with their failure a little bit instead of just trying to make like it's not a thing. I mean, it, eventually it isn't a thing, right? Eventually, like you say, all your guests come on here and say, yep. oh, I, you know, I don't now that I look back on it, it wasn't a fail. But let me tell you, in the moment, it was a yep. failure. In the moment, it totally sucked. In the moment, I was like, what have I done? Uh, lost another year doing this thing and uh, I'm all bummed out for however long it is. But I think that's part of the process. We're like we have to go through that, and I think it's we should acknowledge that these things are painful and crummy. And I think we have mental illness and things because because we're not allowed to sit with our pain, and everybody yeah. around us is saying, "Just forget about it. Forget about yeah. it. It'll be fine. Forget yeah. about it." And I'm like, "No, I just wasted a year of my life. I'm allowed to sit here and cry in my beard." Wow, what a <laughs> what a neat perspective. Um, I think we could all share a beer here. Um, Alex, this is this is a test to see if there is a failure here. Do you know how we usually close off the show? Oh boy, we need your guy. Where's your guy? <laughs> like he's not allowed uh, to be sick. Please. I know. <laughs> Christian, you're fired. I, I say bye, and uh, we shut the cameras off. So, <laughs> so April, the way we Just we black. that's how we yeah. <laughs> So April, the way we usually uh, close off the show um, is. Uh, by asking our guests who they would like to see come on a show like The Art of the Fail to speak about their story. So um, now you, you can see, you know, the crafty little uh, marketing, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, tactic we're using here. But but I'm just genuinely curious. Uh, we've had people uh, mention folks that are not even alive anymore. You know, whose story would you really resonate with when it comes to uh, hardships well so you know right now i'm on this book tour and so i'm speaking at a lot of conferences and so the neat thing about speaking at a lot of conferences is you get to see a lot of speakers that you know you look this year i'm doing something like 40 conferences like i i would never attend 40 conferences in a year ever in my life mm -hmm. if i wasn't writing a book and um, and so you get to see all these really neat people get up on stage and, and do their bit. So, um, and, and some of these people have incredible stories. Um, uh, like, I don't know if you've had Patrick Campbell from profit well on here. No, we yet. haven't. No, you should like, he has an amazing story about running a startup and you know at one point he gets really sick and he's got cancer and oh, like wow. it's an amazing story that he does at conferences and if you haven't had him on you should have him on because his his story is kind of like holy man um patrick campbell yeah patrick campbell he's a good one um and then um you know another one i saw uh, sort of recently but but he, he would be a harder get frankly is is dan arelli um who did the book predictably irrational okay. and he's got a great story about you know how he started to think about how we make decisions and why people do really irrational things mm. and and his story is you know from having been you know burned on 80 percent of his body and he was in the hospital forever he had this super painful thing and he was and the way they were changing his bandages was like 
horrifyingly painful and he just could not understand why the nurses were doing it that way and and so he's he ended up getting really interested in the psychology of that and and mm. you know we why we do irrational things when we don't but anyways he's got an incredible story wow. when it which is a super powerful thing to yeah. hear when he, see him do it at a conference so he'd be a great one awesome if you could get him he's kind yeah. of like fancy fancy university <laughs> professor or whatever like i first met him when he was at um mit and i was working at a company and we were doing some stuff with mit and so i met him there but um so he's a neat one um but yeah i think Very cool. i think maybe that's enough too yeah 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 those are super uh super <laughs> interesting topics super interesting people awesome April Dunford. The book is obviously awesome. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere you can get your books. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We had a blast. Alex, thank you for co-hosting. Yes, thanks, April. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Uh, And uh, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, awesome. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Well, there you have it. Another episode of The Art of the Fail in the Bag. Thanks so much for listening to this one. You can support April by visiting her website at aprildunford.com. And you can buy her book. It's obviously awesome. You can get it on Amazon. And don't forget to install the free OB browser extension, the fastest access to your work documents. You can get that at ob.ai personal. See you next time.